Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. So as we talked about last week, we saw how, uh, in the beginning of Colossians, we saw how Paul connected our faith and our love in this life with our hope and our confident assurance in what's to come, and even in the next life. Knowing that we've been rescued, knowing that we're only here to let others know the rescuer has come, knowing that this rescue will not fail, I think can help us live with joy and faith and gratitude and love here and now. And I think that's part of what Paul is stressing in the beginning of Colossians. But Paul has a lot more to say about the gospel. He starts in that beginning part that we were talking about, saying that we need to focus on the gospel. We need to stay immersed in it. We need to stay remembering it, that that's what the Colossians are doing well, and he's commending them for that. But he's not done talking about the gospel. He's got a lot more to say, and so we're just going to dive right into that. Paul goes on to say this. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, this is really fascinating, even this idea. The Son is the image of the invisible God. So he's talking about Jesus. He was talking about Jesus who rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of light. He was talking about the gospel and that it's, it's Jesus who does it. And he starts, he's going to go in and tell us a little bit about how amazing this Jesus is, how important it is that we understand that. And he says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And this is important. God is, as we know from, from other scriptures, God is spirit. God is not visible, right? God has existed since before uh, eyeballs and spatial things and material elements existed, since before flesh and bone and blood existed, because God created those. And God pre-exists all that, and he is invisible, and he's not visible, um, and he is a spirit, and this is important to understand. I and mean, he is, he, this is why we even talk about the fact that we need to focus on things that we can't always see, to know that these eternal things are not always visible. But God did create us with eyeballs, and he did create us with this, this desire for tangibility, and he did create us with this connection of what we see being easier for us to, to sort of comprehend and analyze and, and understand and believe in. And so this is one of the things we understand about Jesus as he came, as he walked the earth, the Messiah. What's amazing about this is that he is the image of that invisible God. He is the the representation of who God is. It's this incredible idea that is in itself a mystery, that God manages to squeeze himself into this little tiny package this package that's constrained by time and by space, and it's just itty bitty compared to the, the bigness of God. And somehow he constrains himself into that little package. And as he does it, it gives us the ability to see God with our eyeballs. And so he says, Jesus, the son, is the image of the invisible God. Now he also says, the firstborn over all creation. Now, you could read that as if what Paul is saying is that Jesus himself was created before the rest of us. But even if you take this to be some sort of reference to the body that Jesus was created, and that clearly didn't happen in terms of him being born in that manger and then growing up for 33 years, uh, that, whatever, 6 AD or whatever that was that he sort of came to earth, that clearly wasn't the firstborn. There were other people alive before then. He came through Mary. And I think what we see, I think we need to keep going, we'll see that he's not talking about Jesus being the first created being. In fact, As we keep reading, you'll see that's clearly not what Paul means. Then let's keep reading, and then we'll come back to this idea of firstborn to see what he does mean. But I want you to see that it's clear Paul doesn't mean Jesus was the first one to be created. Let's keep reading. He says this, For in him 
all things were created. Well, there you go. That pretty much answers that question. <laughs> Jesus can't be the first one created if in him everything is created. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the true God. And as that, he is the creator of all things. He says, for in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. I think that right there is just talking about the skies, heaven as we see them, right? The sun, the moon, the stars, as well as things on the earth. So, so all of the universe has been created by him. But he does go on to say visible and invisible. So not only the physical things we can see throughout the whole universe, but all of the invisible things that we can't see. The things that, like, like spirits and angels and demons, all these things that we can't see that nonetheless exist, maybe even things like time itself, all these things are, are visible and invisible. They're all created by Jesus, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Here he's also reminding us that there is no power that supersedes God, that supersedes Jesus, because he is the creator of all things. And I think this touches on what Paul really means by firstborn. And he's going to use this term a little bit later too. And I think when Paul's referring to firstborn here, he's talking about a sense of preeminence, a sense of supremacy, not a sense of chronology, right? So the firstborn of creation doesn't mean he was the first one created, but it means he is over all those who have been created. And as somebody who also exists in physical body, who walked the earth, that also sort of gives him that, that position of being of those who were created in a sense, but he is preeminent. He is over all of them because he created them. And I think that's part of the reminder here when he says whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, even all those would not be possible without Jesus' creation. All things have been created through him and for him. It goes on and says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is just an amazing, just little tiny paragraph. We're going to go on a little bit from here, but, but I want us to stop and just experience the awe of this paragraph for a moment. In fact, let me just read it again without interruption. And then let's talk a little bit about sort of the, the sum of this. He says, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. As Jesus is the creator of everything and preeminent in everything, he's also the center of everything, right? Literally, he is the center of the universe. <laughs> You're not the center of the universe. Most of us have learned that at this point in our life. You're not the center of the universe. I'm not the center of the universe. But Jesus actually is the center of the universe. We cannot worship him too much or adore him too strongly. We cannot put him too high on a pedestal because there is no pedestal high enough. He is the center of the universe. It is in him that all things hold together. You know, it's interesting, you know, the scientists at one point, you know, as they begin the, the exploration, understand the origins of everything, which is an interesting thing for a scientist to do because we have no example of anything being created. We have no example in our current day. Science just doesn't have the, the ability to look at something that's, that's sort of didn't exist and then does exist. It always comes from something. And so as scientists are trying to figure out the actual origin of the universe years and years ago, they, they, they came upon this understanding based upon what they could see, that there was a moment at which nothing was there and then something was there. And they call this the Big Bang. And there's a, 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 a scientist of the last couple decades, uh, several decades, uh, who said that, to paraphrase him, he said that, you know, scientists studied and studied to try to find the origins of things, and it's like they climbed this great mountain, and when we got to the top, we discovered that Christians were already there, that theologians were already there. 
Because this idea that there was nothing and then there was something is the way that the Bible describes it. That God was eternal, but in terms of the known universe, the things that we can see, it was just created. The reason I mention all this is because part of that idea of this Big Bang also gives us this, this idea that which can be seen, again in the evidence of, uh, that we have today, of the universe kind of expanding outwards. That it starts with this abrupt explosion from nothing and becomes something, and it explodes outward, and it's just ever since then it's been expanding outward. It's kind of like I also think about, you know, centrifugal force a little bit. If I had a, you know, a rock on a string and I was spinning it around and around and around, that rock, because I'm holding that string, it will stay spiraling around this center. But if I let go of that, it's going to fly off. And it's as if this is telling us that Jesus is in the center of the universe, and if he doesn't hold everything together, it all just dissipates. It all just disintegrates. It flies apart so completely and so fully, there's nothing left. And I think that's a good picture of what he's saying here, that Jesus is the center of the universe. Without him, nothing holds together. Without him, nothing makes sense. And this is why I think, you know, when we talk about focusing on eternal things, when we talk about making this the year of eternal things, I want to be clear that it's, we're not talking about denying the mundane things that we have to do. We're not talking about pretending that you don't have to work a job. We're not talking about pretending you don't have to take care of your family. We're not talking about pretending you don't have to be nice to your neighbor. We're not talking about denying that, that the reality of what you see around you, but it, we are saying that can we look through that reality to the center and see that what really holds everything together is the unseen things, is the invisible God, is the eternal things. And in fact, when we get to the end of Colossians, you'll see that he takes all of this discussion about eternal things and brings it down to say, here's how you should now do the mundane things. And oftentimes we lift those verses out and don't recognize they're very much connected to everything he's been saying. So there is something, there is something about making this the year of eternal things. There's something about seeing Jesus, the center of the universe, that makes us more effective, more fruitful, more able to do the things that are around us in the mundane world. But we have to be able to not be confused and think that your plans or your ideas or, or your success in your job or your ability to love your family or any of those things, we have to not think that those things hold everything together. It's Jesus that holds everything together. And the fact that it is a person and not an idea or a creed or a concept or a philosophy, it really takes a lot of pressure off us. <laughs> you don't have to understand it. <laughs> You don't have to get it. You don't even have to completely understand this thing at the center. And who can completely understand the incomprehensible God of the universe? But you don't have to. He holds it together, not your understanding of him. I think we're all desperately seeking some integrity, something, something that holds all the pieces together, some center to our lives, right? Some way to integrate our, our, our sort of disparate lives and so when I say that we're making this the year of eternal things, I, I don't simply mean that we're adding another disparate piece. That we're saying, now you have religion, now you have God, now you have this eternal thing. Let's just add that to all these pieces that aren't connected and somehow try to get you to focus on yet another thing. Because we just don't have that capacity. But what I am saying is that these eternal things, this Christ in the center of everything, he's what holds it all together. And if we can see that, then maybe our life will work more in an integrated fashion. Maybe things will hold together more. Maybe things will make more sense. I think that's the point that I want us to be thinking about as we read this. He goes on. He says, and he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So here again, and this time it's a lot more clear, Paul clearly isn't saying by firstborn among the dead that Jesus is the first person to ever have been raised from the dead because we know that's not true, right? Elijah raised people from the dead in the Old Testament. Jesus himself raised people from the dead before he raised from the dead. So it doesn't mean here that Jesus was the first one to sort of come back from the dead. But he does mean Jesus is the preeminent one over that. And of course, Jesus coming back from the dead is what makes the rest of our resurrections possible. I think you can even argue that's true going backwards, but we don't need to get into weird questions about reverse causality. But I do think that it is true that, is, that for those of us who have come to life, Jesus makes that possible by his death and his resurrection. But it's really a supremacy that Paul is emphasizing here, a position of, of headship that Paul is emphasizing here more than he's emphasizing chronological beginnings. He says he's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. This is the point that Paul is making. Jesus is not only the center of everything, he's the head of everything. He is the king of everything. He is the Lord of everything. And you don't make him Lord, he is Lord. <laughs> it's nice if you recognize it, helps you out. But he is Lord, he is king. He owns everything. And if you think of it this way, these two things that Paul's talked about, we see that Jesus created everything. And by virtue of creating it, he owns it all. But he also recreated everything through the gospel. As he died and came back to life, he also makes us new in life. It's like he recreates us. And so we become his again. And he is the supremacy because of those things. He goes on to say, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, there's so many mysteries. Now, you remember last week Paul said that the gospel was a mystery. And I think he's talking about a few specific things that we'll see as we get going a little bit more next week or in the next few weeks. But it is also true that the gospel itself is just full of mysteries. And I think this idea of reconciliation by making peace through blood shed on the cross is a mystery. I don't think we can exactly understand why that works or why it's necessary. But it is there. And I will say this, that even if we can't sort of theologically explain or articulate exactly why blood shed on the cross is necessary for our reconciliation, it's interesting that I think in our souls, if I can use that word for now, that in our souls, intuitively, we do understand that. So many stories and so many songs and so much art goes back to this idea of this substitutionary love. This idea that someone lays down their life for somebody else. And when we see it in those stories, we don't question it. We understand that that's a beautiful, redemptive piece of work that somebody does. And I think the power of those stories comes from the fact that that's the reality of what Jesus does on a deeper level. That magic is real and we want to tap into it. And we don't understand it, but for a moment, don't understand it. Just admire it. Just recognize the beauty that's there in it. That God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in this little tiny package of Jesus as he walked the earth so that he could reconcile all things to himself. This whole world, which is held in tight by Jesus, is nonetheless also pulling away from him. There's this corruption. There's this lack of reconciling. There's this lack of wholeness. And Jesus, God was pleased to put everything in Jesus to come to earth in this little tiny package 
so that he could die on a cross and reconcile all of these things, make everything come back to him. The goal of this cosmic plan is that everything will find its place again under Jesus. And not just us, but everything. The whole universe, says Paul, longs for this reconciliation, for this redemption, which comes through Jesus' supremacy and Jesus' centrality. It's interesting, he says, by making peace through his blood. Now, obviously, Paul's writing in Greek here, but for the Hebrews, the idea of peace is much more than simply a a, a um, ceasing of conflict. So you've probably heard the word shalom from the Old Testament. The Hebrew word shalom, which, which we often translate peace, it just means so much more. It actually means wholeness. It means completeness. And I think that's the idea that Paul is going for here too. Not just that we are now reconciled with God and that somehow he's no longer mad at us and we're just no longer an enemy with him. That there is that. We're going to see that in a second. But I think it's also that to recognize that we're being made whole. Because if Jesus is the center of everything, you cannot be made whole without Jesus, right? In fact, you literally will be hollow. If Jesus is at the center and we want to have everything whole and we want to be whole, Jesus has to be at the center. Without him, we're hollow. We have nothing. And this is again where Paul is telling us. He's bringing wholeness to everything by reconciling them to himself. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this in a couple of weeks, but also it's important to Paul that he stressed the blood and the body of Christ as being part of our reconciliation because this is part of what the Gnostics were denying. They were denying that God could come in the flesh. They were denying that they, they were seeing the flesh as so, so opposed to the spirit that God could never inhabit the flesh, that it would be it's too corrupted for him and too corrupting. And so that's why Paul's making all this emphasis about the fact that God came in the flesh in this little package and died physically and with blood. That's part of the reason he emphasizes it is because the Gnostics are denying that. But the whole point is bringing everything back to the center and bringing everything back to him as the head. And for us, this is for the whole universe, but for us, this alienation sort of takes a, a particular form. And he goes on to talk about this. He says, once... You were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. There's that emphasis on the physicality. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. He's returning to the theme of the hope. He's saying that the Colossians, everything that's come that's good for them, their, their hope, their faith, their love, their gratitude, their joy, all of this is coming because of their hope in the gospel, their confidence in everything that Paul's talking about here. But as he gets into it, he starts by saying this, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. So like the rest of the universe, we were separated from the central place of Christ. We, we tried to be in a place where Christ was not in the center. We tried to be at a place where Christ wasn't the head. But it's interesting that for us, un unlike some of the rest of the universe, unlike the mountains and the, and the stars and, and other things without brains, unlike them, this, this alienation for us, it has a, a sort of point of intention in it. It has our, our minds. And he says there's, there's sort of this intellectual ascent, maybe, maybe the idea of will even. He says in our minds, we begin to see God as our enemy instead of our center, our completion. If you think back to the very first, the original deceit 
from the devil to Adam and Eve, this is what it was all about. He said to them, God is not your friend. God doesn't want to empower you. God's your enemy. God wants to make you less than you can be. God is trying to keep you from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because that, if you did, you would be like him. And so the devil planted this idea that God's your enemy. He's not your friend. And so that's what, that's what he says is that we were alienated from God and, and so we thought of him as our enemy. It's interesting, I think even that, that it says we are enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is interesting because I think while it's true that sometimes we do evil things because of our thoughts, that's not what this says. This goes the other way. This says that because of our evil behavior, it led us to conclude in our minds that God was our enemy. And I think we actually see this. And if you think about your own lives and people you've known, you've probably seen this too. That sometimes we do things because we don't believe God when he says we shouldn't. And we think he's our enemy and we don't think he's on our side. So we do things. But then the very nature of wanting to do those things and doing those things then leads us to have to justify our evil behavior by recognizing God is our enemy. And so we, we do these things not, not trusting God, and that in itself leads us to conclude, to affirm, to continue to decide that God is our enemy, and that makes it okay for us to do the things we're doing. In any case, our behavior and our, and our intentions and our thinking about this, what they do is they reflect this lack of integration. They reflect this hollowness. Our behavior, thinking of God as our enemy instead of seeing that he is the center that he's everything we need. It's reflected in our thoughts and it's reflected in our behaviors. And what's interesting is as far as this goes, the Gnostics might agree. They might say that's correct. The way that we think is corrupted and therefore the way that we behave in the flesh is corrupted. And so their answer, the Gnostics answer is to, not, to deny the flesh. And they actually do this a couple of different ways. One is they say, don't do anything evil. But another way they do it is they simply say, ignore what you do in the flesh. Do whatever you want, but just recognize that none of that has anything to do with your spirituality. They tell you to deny the flesh, and they also tell you to embrace new understandings in the mind. And if you will simply learn what they tell you and embrace those understandings, then you will find that you're enlightened and things will be held together. But that is not what Paul says. (laughs) Paul goes on to say that what changes this is in fact not us changing our behaviors. What changes this is in fact not us changing our minds. What changes this is not some mystical knowledge that is taught to us by the Gnostics. What Paul says is that it's Christ who reconciled us. Just him. And he did it himself, not by denying the flesh, but by embracing it. He actually put on flesh and died physically in order to present us holy spiritually. And the Gnostics love to talk about the mysteries that will bring you insight. And Paul says, but look at this great mystery, that Jesus embraced the flesh. God embraced the flesh, the fullness of God reflected in the physical body of Jesus and dying on the cross is what actually makes you holy, sets you apart, calls you out, makes you not an enemy of God. In one sense, it's fair to say we were never actually enemies of God. We made God our enemy, but the enmity was all on our side. God has always sought to woo us back to him, to put himself back in the center. We're told that while we were enemies, he died for us. 
and brought us back to him. So this reconciliation, this huge cosmic plan to redeem the entire universe, put himself back in the center, bring everything back around him, show everybody that he is truly the head. All of this is part of what the gospel is about. And that's what he goes on to say. Paul says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And you have to ask yourself the question, what is the gospel that you heard? And I think it's all of this. Everything we've talked about the last two weeks. Being rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The idea of Jesus being preeminent among all created things and being the creator of all created things and being the one who holds all things together. The idea of Jesus being the head of all those and even over death. He's conquered death. And as that firstborn who's conquered death, he leads us all into that same place. He reconciles us through his blood, through his death. The hedge of his position, the physical nature of his presence, the blood shed for our reconciliation, the central place of Jesus, our enmity, our redemption. These are all things that are part of the gospel. This is the gospel, he says, that you heard. Don't, don't be confused about it being anybody else. And what and who is the most important and central piece of all this? Of course, it's Jesus. Not you. Not me. And certainly not the Gnostic leaders or the other people around you who want to tell you something else. And notice all the things he doesn't say the gospel is. He doesn't say the gospel is about how we climb back into God's good graces. He doesn't say it's about what we make of Jesus. He doesn't say it's about whether we live purely or not. He says the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is the mover, the firstborn, the actor, the initiator, and the completer. The good news is that he has come to rescue you and free you. And the greater we recognize his centrality and his headship, the more our lives will reflect that, and the greater integration we will feel in our own lives. Jesus doesn't promise, and God doesn't promise, and Paul doesn't promise our circumstances will be better. But he does promise they'll make more sense. And he does promise that they can be integrated, and I think he promises a joy and a gratitude that can make your life happier, if I can use that word, regardless of the circumstances. He has made you holy. He has, not you, but him. And grasping that goes a long way toward a more integrated life with eternal things forefront and Christ central. So we're going to talk about this more, all of this, because this is all where Paul's going to go for the rest of Colossians. But for today, I want you to think about this. Paul concludes this by saying, I, Paul, have become a servant of the gospel. He says, this is the gospel you've heard about, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is actually really important to Paul that we understand this. He's going to talk more about this in the next few weeks. But I want you to think about it. I just want to leave you with a couple questions tonight. I want you to think about what it means that Paul has become a servant of the gospel. Paul feels totally okay describing himself as being subject to the good news. Not in control of the good news, not somebody who just preaches the good news, but somebody who is controlled by the good news. What does that mean? What does that look like? And is this something that is only true? And these are, these are actual questions. There's, I'm not leading you to guess what I think is the right answer here tonight. I want you to think about it. Is this only for Paul because he is a missionary or is this for all of us? What, what does it mean to be a servant of the gospel? Is that something we should be or shouldn't be? What does that mean? Here's some other questions. You can write these down if you want. What ways can you reinforce the ideas of Christ's centrality or Christ's kingship in your own life? 
How can you become more persuaded and convinced of these things? That your whole life is held together only by Jesus. I just don't think we all believe that. And I think it's easy to forget that. And we want to find the keys of life or something else that's going to hold everything together. We want our self-actualization, our integration to come some other way. But I really think it comes down to recognizing the center of the universe is God. And Jesus, at that center, is the center of your life. So what does that mean for you? And how do you, how do you grasp that? How do you move towards that? Making this the year of eternal things, that seems like a good place to start. How do we see him central and how do we recognize his kingship? He's in charge. How can you reinforce for yourself? Here's another question. How can you reinforce the idea that the whole point of the gospel is to reconcile not only you, but the whole universe back under Christ's headship? What does that mean? How does that affect things? Does it? Does knowing this cosmic plan have any impact? And if not, why not? You know, what's the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? I actually think this is it. This is what we look for. But what does that mean? Does that help you? <laughs> Think about it. How can you reinforce the idea that you're made holy by him and that this is not something you have to strive for, but it is something you ought to recognize? That Christ has reconciled you and Christ has made you holy. And it's not about finding the keys of the universe or the secret that's still out there or the magic words or the magic thoughts or the magic behaviors. Somehow, it's about Christ. What would, what would it mean if you really believed that? What fears do you have about believing that? What hopes do you have about believing that? What does it mean to live as one who recognizes that their own evil behavior doesn't justify the idea that Christ is the enemy? What if you had to look at your behavior and say, I don't do this because God is trying to hold me back. I don't do this because God's commands are burdensome. I don't do this because what God is trying to do is make me not happy. What if you actually removed that justification and said of yourself, when I do these, I'm going against everything that is central to my life. What would that mean? What would that look like? How do you do that without falling back into the trap of thinking that the way you behave is what makes you holy? And as you wrestle with these questions, we're a community. So ask yourself, how can you help people in your community answer these questions? How can you help them stay focused on the centrality of Christ and the kingship of Jesus? How can you help them stay focused on the idea that there's this grand cosmic plan that we're part of? And that somehow, if we can keep our eyes on that cosmic plan, maybe it'll change the shape of our lives in a way which makes more sense. Maybe it'll integrate us together not pull us away from the things we do in the world, but somehow integrate all those pieces of our life in one whole. How can we help each other do that as a community? How can you do that in your focus groups? These are the questions I want you to think about. It's not typical in churches to end sermons with questions, but that's what I want to do tonight. I just want to leave you with the questions. And they're big questions. You might even have to wrestle with what the questions even mean. Like, what, what, is, what is Dave even asking? That's okay. <laughs> Work through it. Think about it. Contemplate these verses. Chew on them. I, I've provided a Colossians study for people in their focus groups, but I have to admit, it, it, it doesn't go through as slowly as we're going through it on Sunday night. So if you want to adjust the study I've given you and take some of these questions and apply it, you have the authority to do that. Go for it. Please do. 
Most churches believe in the value of small groups, but at Focus Church, we are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the Focus Groups. And we believe that you can be part of a Focus Group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.